Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Matthew Smith, a professor of health history at the University of Strathclyde's Center for the Social History of Health and Healthcare in Glasgow, Scotland. Matthew has written books and articles about the history of ADHD, as well as food allergy, food additives, and social psychiatry. He is a BBC AHRC New Generation thinker and co-edits the Palgrave book series, mental health and historical perspective. I'm excited about our conversation. So hello and welcome, Matthew. Hi, how are you doing, Roman? I'm doing great. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Good, good. I'm, I am really excited, like I said, um, <clears throat> to dive in. I have a little bit of a getting over a little sore throat. So um, that's what, what you're hearing. But I'm excited to dive right in and I'm starting uh, with my favorite question to you as well, which is what is, in your opinion, this thing called ADHD? Wow. You know, it's funny that that's actually such a great question. Um, I, I would say that ADHD is a way in which we have come to think about children who exhibit certain behaviors that don't necessarily jive with how we expect them to behave in certain circumstances, especially educational settings. So I, I think a lot as a historian about the different terms in which uh, that we've used to describe what we now call ADHD. And each one of them really represents something different about how children were being perceived at that particular time. So um, I think, you know, I would see ADHD as a, as a term that represents or is, is uh, symbolic of a certain time and place. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's a label that we use to describe children who don't behave in the way that we'd like them to and don't necessarily learn in the way that we expect them to. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that uh, definition. And I certainly have uh, had the experience that most experts have a slightly different um, definition, right? Unless we go with the DSM. So I always appreciate that because it opens up just another little bit of a perspective around it. Now, you said the keyword historian, you're a professor and you look into health uh, uh, history. And so I'm really excited about that because um, I really want to hear, uh, in this case, from someone who has looked at it over time, right? And we'll get into that. But tell maybe uh, just for our listeners a little bit, uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, journey, right? You started as a youth counselor, and maybe we can start there unless you want to go further back. But Sure. Well, I guess <laughs> one way we could go further back is that when I when I was in kindergarten back in Edmonton, Alberta, actually not quite sure in Park, Alberta, to be more precise, um, I was one of those kids who was set aside as not 
not uh, behaving and performing in the way that I was supposed to. So I couldn't operate scissors in the way that I was expected to, and I couldn't balance on a balance beam. So uh, my teacher thought I was had a learning disability. Um, so my mom just took me to <laughs> took me out of that school and put me into another one. So that was kind of the end of that. But yeah, apart from that, certainly my journey into understanding ADHD came out of my experience in the late 90s and early 2000s as a youth counselor in Edmonton, Alberta. And so what I worked for the YMCA and we were contracted out by the province of Alberta to um, help kids who had dropped out of school for various reasons uh, to try to get them some money to get back into school. So give them an income so that they could go to school uh, or, or get a job, usually go to school. And these kids came from really tough backgrounds. Uh, a lot of them had been in, involved in criminal justice system, drug issues, alcohol. A lot of them had been abused, gangs, you name it, you know, prostitution. It really all sorts of nasty background situations going on. And yet what we tended to do <laughs> was identify so many of these kids as having ADHD. So what I would do, I would have basically a checklist of symptoms. And if they ticked enough boxes, I would refer them to a, a, a neuropsychologist who would then do a diagnosis. And then they'd usually get the drugs and all the rest of it. And so after a while, I, I didn't mind this so much because what it did, a diagnosis gave them some get out of jail free card. So when they did go back to school, uh, if they didn't show up, well, they've got a ADHD, let's give them a break, that sort of thing. But after a while, I just, I got a bit disturbed really that we weren't thinking about these, the social background of these kids. We were focusing so much on their, what we thought their neurology was, and we weren't thinking about their actually their lived day-to-day -day experiences and what had happened to them growing up. And so I just, at some point when I started to, or decided to do a master's degree in history, I didn't set out to look at the history of ADHD um, but basically midway, midway through my first year, I was having a bit of a, a crisis moment and it just occurred to me, actually, there might be an interesting history there. I, I didn't, I don't remember kids being diagnosed with this when I was young. So where did this come from? And so that was the starting point, just trying to figure out, okay, why did we get to ADHD? What happened that led us down this road where we're diagnosing all these kids and prescribing them these drugs? Yeah, and that's thank you for sharing that. And and I just want to insert something here, and I'd love to continue, uh, uh, you know, covering your journey because it is fascinating to me to how you went uh, about this uh, through history. But you mentioned the sort of like call it the 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 trauma of these children's lives, right? And, and there's the ACE study, the famous ACE study that I'm still surprised how how few parents have ever heard of it or care to read up about it. And this is on the CDC website and I'm, I have my own, uh, you know, ways I look at the CDC, but you know, it's on a mainstream website 
And so maybe just tell us a little bit about, I've talked about it before. What do you feel? Because it's kind of part of history, right? I think it was in the early 90s. What do you feel the ACE study added to our knowledge around ADHD, the symptoms, the, the traumatic childhoods, and, and the likelihood that someone with traumatic childhoods might later be diagnosed with ADHD? Well, adverse childhood experiences, um, if you go back 100 years from now, back to the 19 teens, even more than 100 years, they were looking at ad adverse childhood experiences. They didn't look at them in the same way that we do now necessarily, but the, the first social workers that were working in Chicago and New York City and, and Boston, they were recognizing adverse childhood experiences and they recognize that these sort of things could cause all sorts of problems for kids not just problems in school but could lead to the sort of outcomes that no parent would want of their kids so in terms of so i think it's worth mentioning that that you know although the you know the the acronym ACE is, is relatively well twenty five years old I suppose uh, about now. You know it's not this isn't new stuff in other ways. So I think the key thing here I suppose is that we have to realize that children do not grow up in a in a bubble. You know and and if things happen to them and and. You know, we. I think it's useful to also think about the concept of resilience alongside aces. Um, if if they grow up in circumstances where they are faced with these adverse childhood experiences, say, you know, I mean, God forbid, sexual abuse or or getting uh, beaten up or exposed to alcoholism and drug abuse and these sorts of things, it is going to make a mark on these children, and. It's something that it isn't inherent in them. It isn't something they're born with. It's something that happens to them. And so for me, I think it's really important to it in the sense that it gives us a way of understanding these children and their experiences that helps to explain why the way, why they are the way they are. You know, if you think, I mean, think about it in a in a different way. Think of any superhero film that you've seen, pretty much, where there's an origin story, you know, Batman or, or Spider-Man or whoever, usually, in mo or Superman, I could go on, usually there's some kind of traumatic thing that happens to the, the, the character early on, and it, it, it's, in the case of the superheroes, usually it gets, um, it gets, uh, manifested in in something positive ultimately, but they they still have to deal with this grief and the stress and the turmoil of whatever happened, right? So we we understand this in some ways, like when we're reading a comic book, but we don't necessarily think about this in terms of quote unquote regular kids or, or kids that aren't aren't becoming superheroes. So um, I think in terms of specifically for ADHD. The sort of problems that adverse childhood experiences will tend to trigger are going to map on to the sort of characteristics, some of the characteristics uh, of children who are diagnosed with ADHD, as well as some of the outcomes, such as perhaps addictions or getting involved with uh, you know, crime, for example, 
that sometimes is a, are associated with kids with ADHD as well. So it, it, a, it, there's a certain degree of chicken or egg, you know, but I think in, in, in the way I look at it, I, I always want to look at, you know, ultimately you want to think that kids um, have the potential to be, you know, whatever they want within certain limits, right? So I like to think of children as not means to the end of a successful adult, but kind of an end childhood as an end in itself. And that, and that means that, you know, any, any child given the right upbringing um, can achieve, you know, what they want. Um, whereas I think when we think of it differently, and I guess, Along with that, so if if they're not given the right upbringing, if they are exposed to all these awful things, then you know problematic behaviors might happen. I, I think that's a much more helpful way of looking at children um, and their behavior than thinking of them as okay when they're born they're stamped with a certain label or a certain set of expectations ba based on neurology uh, and genetics. And that we just have to, you know, go with that. You're stuck with that. Right. I don't, I don't find that particularly helpful. And it, it also overlooks the fact that, you know, in today's world, we need people with all sorts of different kind of skill sets and abilities. And it's rather limiting to just expect children to be one way or another. Um, that's totally. not going to help us solve the, the big yeah. problems that we face, right? Oh my God, there's there's so much there. I just want to say for those of you listening. The, the, this is not an opinion that Matthew has or that I have. You can look up the ACE study on the CDC website or just Google ACE, A-C-E study, and you'll uh, hear more about it. And the more I researched into this, um, I was able to uh, hear it from two different experts in the same way. And it, one was Peter Levine, who's a trauma specialist, right? And and he had given me during our interview, he hands me a piece of paper and he said, by the way, you've, you'll find this interesting. Here are the symptoms of uh, trauma and the symptoms of ADHD. And he had created a little overlap and it was 90% overlap, right? And this is a trauma expert and he's in his seventies. Then Nadine uh, Burke, Harris, I think, or Nadine Elberg, who's also Canadian born, um, coincidentally, great Canadians uh, coming out of that country. So she was the former California uh, Surgeon General, and she had given a TED talk around uh, uh, ACE and trauma. And, and same thing, she said that in her practice, when she was practicing before becoming the Surgeon General, she had seen lots of children come in, right, parents bringing them in for ADHD. And what she later realized is that, you know, 90 plus percent of them had traumatic upbringings. And I just want to be clear for those of you listening, when we talk about trauma, uh, my favorite saying is just because there's no drama doesn't mean there's no trauma, right? There can be lack of nurture, there can be uh, not paying attention to your children being too emotionally unavailable, whatever. Just want to make that clear when people go, oh, well, there's no trauma in our family. That's usually a red flag, right? We all have had some kind of trauma. But anyway, so much you said so much to unpack, but I just want to continue I'll, I'll made some notes so we'll get back to this but so as a historian right you then started to and this was fascinating that you started to look into this this expectation that societies or cultures or countries had laid upon their children to become successful adults and i'd love to dive in if it's okay with you because it's a fascinating topic 
when did you first, or not necessarily when, but how did you come about this uh, insight where you were kind of just looking at like, wait a minute, there's a lot of pressure on these kids here and here's why. Mm. Well, historians often like to, you know, often when you think about history, if you ask someone, do you like history? And they said, nah, those dates are also boring and confusing. Well, actually, sometimes the dates are really useful. So one of the things that I did, and this is something that I've done in, on lots of different historical projects, is you just go through the medical or the psychiatric literature to find out, okay, when do the psychiatrists and doctors start talking about these types of kids? And one of the things that struck me was that when you read a, a, a typical textbook uh, that deals with ADHD, they have a certain um, timeline. So they'll mention some different doctors from hundreds of years ago, and they'll say, oh, they were describing kids with ADHD. And so one of the things I did is that I, and one, one of the most famous ones is this Dr. George Still, who writes about these kids in the Lancet in 1902. And so I went, I went to the, <laughs> historians like to go to the original source, right? Whether it's in an archive or uh, interviewing someone or, or just a medical journal. So I opened up the Lancet and there, there it was basically, I think there were two or three articles that dealt with this. And George still describes these children and they are, they're not reminiscent of kids diagnosed with ADHD. These kids are severely disturbed. They're the sort of kids that are, are, you know, injuring their siblings, they're, they're hurting or killing their pets or setting fires. They're, and in his words, they're bound for an institution. So they're bound for the loony bin, you know, to, to, put it that way. And so I looked at some of the other descriptions and it was the same sort of thing. I mean, these, the, the children who are typically cited uh, earlier on in the history simply do, you know, they're not the typical kid uh, that has ADHD today. So when do you start getting these kids described? Well, there's a specific year and it's 1957. That's the first year in which you start getting these sorts of kids described. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that we get a label. So I was talking about labels earlier on, and we, we first get this label called hyperkinetic impulse disorder, which doesn't have the quite, quite the same ring as ADHD, but if you think about it, hyperkinetic, so hyperactive, impulse disorder, well, impulsity is a key part in the ADHD diagnosis. But the key thing is that the psychiatrists that wrote the letter, they say specifically in this article that this disorder could be diagnosed in many kids in any classroom right so they're describing it could be found in any classroom and they're they're describing it as something that's going to be common all right so we have a we have a label so why might we want to label kids with this in 1957 well the other big thing that happens in 1957 is the soviets launch sputnik the S sputnik satellites and this throws the american military, uh, scientific, and educational uh, establishment into a tizzy. You know, how have the Soviets gotten to space before we did? We thought we were leaving the Second World War on top. And now all of a sudden, you know, 12 years later, we're behind. And so the very next year, 
Uh, and you can go and look at look at all the literature that comes out in response to Sputnik. So much of it focuses on education because it's blaming the education system for what's happened. And so in the very next year, 1958, we get the National Defense Education Act. And what that act does is it basically sets in place the apparatus through which kids can be diagnosed with ADHD at, at high, high, high numbers. So what happens as part of that is that there's an expectation that kids don't drop out of school, that they finish high school, that they go on to college or university, so no dropouts, that um, they expect children to do well in core subjects, so English, science, math, foreign languages, and they also pay for, uh, well, a couple hundred thousand guidance counselors uh, minimum to start recognizing the kids that don't succeed. And the kids that don't succeed or that, that tend to be uh, described as the underachievers, they are described as having the characteristics of ADHD. So you have this double whammy happening. Now, at the same time, you're also getting changes in the environment of children that also make it more likely for them to, to get diagnosed. So, you know, for example, this is the baby boom generation. There are more kids in school than ever before. So the classrooms are big. A lot of women have left teaching to, to have families of their own. So there's, you know, there's the, the classes are crowded. It's also an era of, of television. So kids are learning things in a different way for the first time or in, in, in terms of screen time for the first time. The diet is changing. There's less time spent in the outdoors. Uh, all sorts of things are, are changing in the lives of these children that exacerbate these sort of behaviors, which are for the first time recognized as a disorder. And then of course, the other thing that happens in 1961 is that Ritalin, which had had an interesting life prior to being a childhood uh, hyperactivity drug, uh, is approved for use in children. And so all these things combine to create the first hyperactive child. Wow. Yeah, thank you for laying that out. And <clears throat> certainly what I'm hearing is this First of all, there's a one size fits all education system that everybody's squeezed into. Then on top of that, the pressure is amped up, right? Because of this, this uh, need to prove that America is stronger and better and faster and smarter and all that stuff, right? Again, there's probably people listening going like, yeah, what's wrong with that? You know, better <laughs> education, right? All yeah. good. We're all for good education. You're a professor, right? I value education, finally, now that I'm older. But the point here, I think that if I'm hearing this correctly, is that when kids are expected to perform as individuals in a one-size-fits-all group setting, and there's so much pressure, naturally, say 30% of them, I'm just making this up, uh, are going to stand out as as not... Uh, uh, normal of the norm, mm -hmm. right? And then the question becomes, what do we do with them? And what I'm hearing is that at the time, what we do with them to keep them orderly, to keep our numbers up is to medicate them, label them and medicate them, right? And one of the great things I've heard recently in an interview uh, with Chris Rowan, I'm going to post that as well in a couple of weeks, 
was this term of labeling is disabling, you know? And I think that's what happened to these kids and still happens nowadays where when you get labeled, a lot of parents perhaps say, oh, it was such a great, finally, we knew what was quote unquote wrong with him or her, right? So I get that they think that labeling can be positive and empowering. I would disagree, but let's talk a little bit about that. What is a label? What do you think are the the pros of a label and what are the cons in this case? Yeah, that's really interesting. The, the One of the phrases that always sticks with me, it comes from a time magazine article on, um, well, they don't call it ADHD back then, but from 1968 on hyperactive children. And this what this mother goes, now I can love my child again, as if, you know, you, you couldn't love your child when they were misbehaving. <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, that that's always stuck with me. Um, so for from my perspective, I think there's a there's a difference in terms of how we have to look at a label from a, the perspective of a child versus the perspective of an adult. The child does not really have a say in what label is put on them. And plus they're still in a uh, position in life with where they're growing, they're learning, you know, they're, they're still becoming who they are. Um, and they do that at different stages. Just <laughs> my my son is away this weekend at a rugby, uh, doing a rugby uh, tournament down in England. He has not had his growth. He's 12, 12 and a half. He has not had his growth spurt. He is the tiniest <laughs> player amongst all these massive, bo- these massive young men. He's a boy amongst young men. And yeah, that that ain't easy when you're playing a, a, a tough sport like rugby. So eventually he will catch up just like, you know, if, if your kid is the like my daughter is the youngest kid in her in her cohort because of when she was born. So she is in some cases, she's a year or sometimes 18 months or even more younger than her classmates. So she is still developing. So there's that whole context that has to go around children when it comes to labeling, I think. I'm more sympathetic with adults simply because they have the power to go along with a label or not. And I think they have more of a sense of their life experience in terms that this, I mean, the, the word I would use is ADHD can be a real heuristic. It can be a real explanation for people for why their life seems to you know cause them problems now unfortunately we don't neither you know you in the united states me in scotland we don't really live in particularly forgiving societies right and so if someone is struggling you know sometimes and they're an adult young adult or middle aged doesn't really matter sometimes a label can help them explain why their life has been a challenge and maybe give them some strategies to try to do things differently. And I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. The difference is when you're doing it to a child, especially when you're doing it to a very young child, you know, someone who's four five, six years old, um, you know, that I think that that's problematic. Uh, I mean, the way I look at it is that you should look at changing everything first before start, you know, going down the route of labeling. Um, 
yeah, it's that's not easy, especially given the state of our school systems a lot of the time. But um, I do think it's something that you know parents have to be a bit assertive about um, because you know you just don't know how a kid's going to develop and and how they might change. My my when when my son was very small in nursery school. I thought for sure he would get labeled with ADHD. Maybe, maybe it was partly because I was writing about it all the time, but he was just very, very active. He was well, one thing to another. And when he started school, all of a sudden a, 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 a switch flicked and he was he just figured out how to work a school system. And actually, he, he kind of he knows how to work the system a little too well, if you ask me. Um so, you know, I would never have suspected this. Um, and I spent a lot of time with my son growing up, but fortunately, you know, when he was small, but I would never, I never would have suspected that. So I think when we label, sometimes we limit, you know, what, I mean, labeling is disabling, that that has a ring to it. But I think it's also a question of limiting the possibilities um, at a time when they shouldn't be limited. Maybe, maybe when you're in your 30s and you really got to get your stuff together, maybe maybe that, that that's a different scenario, but not when you're seven or eight. Right. And, and it's interesting. That's when I always think of the neuroplasticity, right? For some mm -hmm. reason, we disregard that. Parents, it's almost like I've never heard of it, right? Science hasn't really proved that that's true, which is not true. We actually have proven that that the brain keeps developing right into late ages. And so here's the interesting thing. What I'm hearing you say makes me think of this very silly, simple example. It's almost like if you have a little one who, say, keeps peeing into their diaper, right, into an older age. And it's almost like because there's parents that call their children with ADHD, they call them ADHD or they'll say on Facebook posts, oh, my ADHD or does this and this and this. Mm. That would be like saying, oh, my peer, right? The one that pees in the diaper and then assuming yeah. there'll always be a peer because they're yeah. peeing right now, right? But that changes like at different stages in life for different kids. I know it's a silly example, but that literally is like labeling a child with a disempowering label for something that they're struggling with at that time in life. Now, fast forward, most kids that have come out of college or in the workforce with ADHD, yeah, there's still some adults that struggle with it, but mo for most kids, it's not an issue anymore. So mm. there's something about this entering school and exiting school, this in-between, which is school, right, or education, that just amps it up or inflames it or, or, or magnifies it. And we just talked about that, right? So want to go back a little bit to... Um, you, we had talked about the, the 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 role of school counselors, right? I grew up in Switzerland where my school counselor looked at my grades in my last year of high school and said, oh, with your grades, you should do this. And there's a, there's a, a, a job in this town. So stamp, there you go. And I was like, well, well, wait, I don't want to work at an insurance company one town over from my town. I don't want to do that. They're like, well, that's all you got. That's all you can do, right? So talk to me a little bit about what you saw, like school counselors, psychology, psychiatry, and then ultimately the prescription of drugs, right? How did that continue uh, from this riddle in from the 60s? Yeah. So I think that the, the other thing to keep in mind is that jobs were changing 
at this point in in U.S. history and in the history of other countries as well. So we were leaving a period in which people were working a lot in factories or doing labor work or doing farm work um, or a huge percentage of the population was doing jobs that didn't require much education at all. We were going from that to a situation where not only were jobs becoming more sophisticated and requiring more education, but there was a demand because of Sputnik to produce more scientists and engineers to you know make the United States more competitive. So there's a really interesting article from the early 60s. It's called uh, Future Scientists and Underachievers. And what these uh, psychologists do is they compare kids who are off to a NASA science camp with those that are heading uh, or those that are underachieving, basically. And they analyze the characteristics that each group has. And they find that the kids that are underachieving aren't necessarily, you know, their IQ scores. And I mean, IQ tests are another huge issue on, on, on their own, but they, their IQ scores aren't really different, but they have higher levels of impulsive <laughs> impulsivity, higher levels of hyperactivity and inattention. So they're ADHD kids, basically. Um, and so what the guidance counselors are doing is that they're basically on the on the lookout for these kind of kids because these are the kids that seem to be smart, they seem to do well in standardized tests, but they don't have the grades to back that up. And so again, these these sort of ADHD characteristics are 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 seen in these sort of children. And because this is an era where not just Ritalin, but all sorts of different psychiatric drugs are becoming popular for the very first time. I mean, we think of you know drugs and psychiatry, but prior to 1950, there was very little in terms of pharmaceutical remedies that psychiatrists could offer. That's that's why that's why what they were doing instead were things like electroconvulsive therapy and lobotomies, because you know the drugs weren't there weren't drugs there to give. So. The 1950s and 60s are an era where not only children, but all sorts of Americans are getting drugs. And what's really interesting about Ritalin is that Ritalin was originally, it's a stimulant. So it was originally prescribed to people who are feeling sluggish and kind of down in the dumps. It was it was uh, advertised, in fact, as being stronger than coffee, but not as strong as as uh, benzodiazepam, so you know, a really strong amphetamine. So you'd have this bizarre situation in the 1960s where the mom would be getting Ritalin to perk her up, and the kid would be getting Ritalin to calm them down, or usually a him, right? So there's there's this really all these things are coming together to create this phenomenon, and I think because the drug has an impact it, it 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 has an impact in lots of different ways um it and it you know the psychiatrists you get quotations from psychiatrists saying things like well this this is a you know 
they find it it's effective for them because all they need to do is prescribe this and the patient goes away and then Bob's your uncle, you know, everything's fine, apparently. Um, this is also an error of psychoanalysis. So uh, psychiatrists who have another approach to understanding mental health would take a much more much longer approach, you know, going into person's background over months and perhaps years. Well, that's a very that's a, such a different way of dealing with mental illness than just prescribing a, them a pill and going away. So, you know, we have to really look at the emergence of ADHD in this in this broader context. It's it's like you know um, it's that you know the the butterfly flaps its wings and a hurricane happens. It's not quite that uh, crazy, but a lot of things have to come together. And I think what, what you said at the beginning there about the parents, this isn't just a top-down story. This, you know, yes, pharmaceutical companies make a lot of money out of ADHD drugs, and they have since the early 1960s. Uh, Siba Geige, Ritalin was their bestseller uh, while, while they had it in the, in the late 1960s and early 70s. But Parents are also looking for a solution. This is also a period where corporal punishment is no longer um, the norm, you know, so you can't beat your kids <laughs> out of their behavioral problems, rightly so. Um, but, you know, I think in many ways, parents are looking for answers as well. And many of them, partly because this is an era where there are all these scientific marvels happening, including biological biomedical models are marvels like the first really good uh, antibiotics vaccines like the polio vaccine you know all these marvels coming out well why not a drug to make your kid better at school <laughs> absolutely and look i mean we live in a capitalistic society and that goes back to you know even switzerland sibagaygi i'm from switzerland i remember that company very well and you know it, it, if you can make money with a product that you can get the government to agree that it's quote unquote safe, then, Hey, let's go for it. Right. And often, you know, I, I don't want to just uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but often governments don't know, right. They haven't done the testing long enough. Right. And so they go like, yeah, it's pretty safe. And then sometimes later they change their, their opinions and their approvals. But I feel that often because they got a safe face, they can't say, Oh, yeah, it was a little intense or the side effects were a little too much, right? So I'd love to just hear from your opinion and of course also from research and facts you've come across uh, around side effects of these drugs, right? What, what do you know? What have you heard? Uh, what do you believe uh, side effects in stimulant medication, right? Stimulant drugs. Well, I guess there, there's direct side effects and there's indirect side effects, I would say. So in terms of direct side effects, there's, and you know, this is all quite controversial. You know, people point to certain studies and others will point to other studies, but generally speaking, the sort of side effects that have been associated with ADHD drugs for, well, 50, 60 years, things like, um, problems with appetite and problems with growth. So stunted growth, perhaps um, problems sometimes uh, more severely with uh, heart, uh, cardiovascular health for some um, infamous cases uh, where there's been heart problems. 
Um, but I think also it, it it's kind of funny, but it, it it's also kind of a gateway drug <laughs> in a way. So on the one hand, often people who are diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed Ritalin, that's not going to be the only psychopharmaceutical drug that they're prescribed. And again, or not again, but it's worth noting that these aren't drugs you just take for a one course like an antibiotic and then that's it or a vaccine you take it maybe you have a booster and then you're done no these are drugs you take daily for years and years and years so um they're making a lot of money for the pharmaceutical companies and we've also seen i mean um uh schwartz's book uh adhd nation describes this quite a bit how a lot of young people teenagers who start out with Try to get uh, they they're either prescribed Ritalin. Some of them uh, think that Ritalin or Adderall is going to be a good study drug, so they try to get it illicitly. And then um, a bit like uh, OxyContin uh, leads to more illicit drugs. So in the case of uh, stimulant medication, it may, might lead to worse amphetamines. It might lead to cocaine. Um, and there's plenty of cases where that's that's happened and you know as early as the late 1960s um drug people interested in addictions and drugs were concerned about ritalin because it is a strong stimulant and you know if you have enough of it if it's not taken responsibly it can cause real problems especially if it's combined with other drugs so yeah we're not we're not talking about vitamins here <laughs> we're we're talking about uh a, a serious drug that um you know if taken improperly can result in in big problems so i think i guess the problem though is that we don't have enough studies that look at this in real detail often what you get is certain studies that kind of pop up here and there and so they can be dismissed because there, there's not so many of them and you don't get the real longitudinal studies looking into it because well who's going to fund that you're not going to get a pharmaceutical right company to fund that um yeah, but there's certainly, a- you know there's 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 quite a lot of uh there's you know you all you really have to do is you have to look at the the advertisement and all the side effects that are listed and there's a long list of them right you have to take that last part of the commercial that's sped up and slow <laughs> it down right um but it's, it's interesting because russell barkley is one that has always uh sort of held up a bullhorn and said there's there's value in you know stimulant drugs for for ADHD because it improves academic performance. But what parents don't know is that him, like the people he works for, and you can go on Wikipedia and see who he gets money from, pharmaceutical companies. It's not a secret. A lot of these what I call mainstream experts receive money from pharmaceutical companies. That's a fact. And you know what what he did, like many others is they cherry pick the information. They take the first part of the, the, the study that says over three years, there was this huge improvement. But yeah. when we look at five years, 10 years, there really wasn't an academic improvement uh, uh, or, or at least not a number, a percentage that's worth mentioning. And to me, that alone says it all. It's like, yeah, we have studies, but there really aren't scientific studies that have this overwhelming evidence that Yes, that definitely improves a child's academic performance. Therefore, it's worth it because the parents are too busy. We want them to go to a good school. I get it, right? 
but it doesn't add up. And it's just the sound bites that, that the, the, the mainstream media throws out there that parents hear, like another one of my favorites is like, it's genetic. And it's like, well, yes and no, there's more to that. And once you mm-hmm. dive deeper and you realize epigenetics can prove that the, the, the environment can turn on or off a gene. So we're never predetermined, but at most predisposed. When you start opening that box, Parents get confused. They're like, yeah, but it, no, but it's genetic. I've heard it. I've heard it so many. It's mm-hmm. true, right? What do you say when you hear that? When parents sort of disempoweringly, if that's a word, say, well, well, it's uh, his dad and his genetics and the lineage. And it's just, that's it. It's genetic. What do you hear? What do you think? Well, l- let me first just very briefly um, on the, on the, the studies that you mentioned. So, I think that my favorite example of this has to do with the uh, the the uh, the Feingold diet and the argument that food additives could cause hyperactivity. So this is an idea that comes out in the early 1970s, and so you had a series of trials that tested this. Now, and a lot of those trials were funded by basically a food industry lobby group that did not want. Uh, food chemicals to be restricted in any way, shape, or form. Guess what? All these trials found that there wasn't any link. And then the other trials that were more sympathetic, they found that there was a link. Now, when I looked at all these trials, the first thing that I found was that most of the trials were terribly done. You know, seriously, even me, humble historian, could look and see the flaw at the flaws in these trials. So they were poorly done. Moreover, you'd get one person looking at a trial and saying, oh, that clearly shows that there's a, there's a, there's a benefit to reducing the, the number of food additives. And then you get another person looking at the exact same trial and say, well, that doesn't mean anything at all. So, you know, we like to think that there's this scientific method that's, you know, akin to godliness. And, you know, all you have to do is do it in the right way and everything's fine, but there's a hell of a lot of a human that comes into the scientific method. There's a lot of opinions and and reputations at stake and money at stake. So anyways, I wanted just to mention that because it's it's really important to open the black box that is science. So when people say the science says this, the science doesn't ever say anything. Scientists say things and usually it's back based on on, you know, impressive experiments and all the rest of it, but there's always a human involved. And so I think that's important for people to know. That's great. Yeah. yeah, Thank you. Thank you for saying that because I believe, you know, during COVID people had these yard signs up that says science matters. And I was like, of course it does. Yeah. What are you, what are you trying to say? Like that one science around COVID is the truth and the other one isn't right. But where's the dialogue between the two findings anyway, just wanted to say that. So I love yeah, that. yeah, no, there, there's, and that's the other thing is that science is usually different shades of gray. Every once in a while, it's black and white, you know, maybe smoking and cancer and these sorts of things. But um, very uh, certainly when you're dealing with human behavior, it's usually gray. And I guess that's where you get to genetics. Um, I think, you know, genetics again can can be a great exploration for a lot of a lot of things. Um, and it, I think it provides people with an explanation where they don't have to look in the mirror. 
and their maybe their parents don't have to look in the mirror either because it it hints that it's inevitable. It would always be this way because his father was like this and his grandfather was like this. And you hear people of the the son goes in and gets a diagnosis. And then lo and behold, the father thinks, oh, hold on, that sounds like me. And they get a diagnosis. So it must be this ADHD gene or whatever. Um, I, I, my view is that I just think humans are far, and behavior and the environment is far more complex than that. And I guess the other thing is that yes, you can use drugs to tweak, tweak neurology and try to get people to behave in certain ways, but I'm much more concerned with trying to change the environment, you know, to, to make the environment more uh, flexible for people who have a different, um, different makeup, let's say. So even if even if there was even if someone was able to prove to me that oh it's definitely genetic, um, then well okay fine. So what do you do? You just you just because it's genetic, it forces this person to be on drugs for the rest of their life, or do we try to change the environment to make it more adaptable? So I'm very much of the you know the neurodiversity side rather than the neuro enhancement side. You know I I don't want to be taking drugs or expecting my kids to take drugs so they they can be competitive and successful in society. I'd rather have a more forgiving society. Um, I think the other, the other aspect there is that, you know, we, we won't, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we often have quite a limited view of what success is. And I think that's a problem as well. And, you know, it's quite funny when when people go back and retrospectively diagnose historical characters with ADHD, it's usually people that were phenomenally successful, you know, like revolutionary people. And I mean, I'm not a fan of retrospectively diagnosing people anyways, but I often think, okay, yeah, so Mozart had ADHD, okay, well, I guess we wouldn't have had classical music <laughs> right. if he hadn't had it or what, you know, so there's, there's always a different way of looking at it. But I think, you know, the, we, we know that it's not just nature or nurture. Both things are involved, but it's the environment that we can really do something about. So that's where I think we should put our en yeah. energies and efforts. I love that. And, you know, when I hear nature versus nurture, I'm with you. I believe there's some small percentage of what I jokingly refer to as like, oops, God made some mistakes, right? I don't think they're mistakes, but you know, like that's what, how we would have to look at it, right? If these children's brains are not right or broken or disordered, then what happened? What happened during the creation of those brains, right? Which I don't buy into, but the nurture part is huge because again, environment is what nurtures us or doesn't, right? And I like what you said about society that like we'd rather change that. And uh, Gabor Mate in his latest book, uh, The Myth of Normal, says it all, really kind of talks about how, you know, in the absence of normal, there wouldn't be ADHD. Because if you don't have a norm to compare these children to, right, then you just have neurodiversity you have like you said one kid that's made up like this the other one's made up like that one should be a, a a ranger out working outdoors with trees the other one loves to sit down and do spreadsheets right 
But those two, if you switch them, there'll be some benefits for a few hours, but then they'd go crazy be like, I it's yeah. not my thing. I can't do it. So, um, that said, you know, nature versus nurture, um, you probably remember the, uh, the refrigerator theory around autism that came out that really, when I researched in further into it, I was like, okay, look, they kind of had the wrong marketing team. Like the slogan really screwed them, <laughs> you know, they screwed themselves, but there's something there about like, you know, uh, uh, I'm sort of jumping around, but I think I'm trying to make the same point. There's this thing recently I heard where it's like, we talked about sex addiction with someone and they said, oh, well, you know, men, they're just, it's, it's just men, you know, that's just how they're. And I thought to myself, yeah, but who are they raised by? They're raised by women. We can't just say, oh, that's just men. They're raised by women. And of course, men, or nowadays add whatever gender you want to add in, but there's a feminine and masculine energy. And I believe that when the nurture is missing, when the, the human doesn't get the feminine uh, energy and the masculine, both lovingly and nurturingly, there's something that starts to quote unquote disorder in the brain. There's a, there's like a, 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 a missing, right? There's a, uh, perhaps uh, what I always say, there's, a, there's a going outside and looking for it somewhere else. How can I get the love and nurture that I'm not getting from my parents? Right. Mm. So I know that's a long explanation, but talk to me a little bit about how you feel about this whole idea of, uh, absent-minded parents, emotionally unavailable parents. You've mentioned physical abuse, sexual abuse. Let's just all, in a way, call it abuse or lack that then mm. causes children to uh, disassociate or check out. Which I really think ADHD is one of those things where you just like leave, leave the present moment. You need you're just somewhere else, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. I guess the other thing that what you were saying made me think about is that often in psychiatry and in mental health, we work in paradigms. So we have a period where thinking about mental health in psychoanalytical terms is the only way to do it. So you must think about it this way or else you're not going to get a career. You're not going to have any patients. You're going to be made a fool of. And then something comes in and replaces it. Let's say, psychopharmacology and 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 genetics and if you don't if you don't have this as your framework you're not going to get a job etc cetera, etc cetera, right and as a historian when you see these paradigms come in and out and then come back <laughs> after kind of being hibernated for a while you sort of think well you know what there's probably a little sense to a lot of them right and i think so that and when I think about autism, I think that that's really important because you know, Jennifer Singh wrote a book on autism that talks about how you know billions and billions of dollars have been spent trying to find the autism gene, and they 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 haven't found it right. And and you know, so rather than spending all those billions trying to find a gene, well, what maybe spend some of that money trying to make the, the lives of people. Uh, with that diagnosis and their families a bit more <laughs> give them a bit of support but i think in terms of in terms of parents i mean parenting is hard you know i mean it i guess if you think about it so in glasgow where i live um say a hundred years ago 
most people, if you're working class, you would have lived in a tenement, right? So this would have been a, a row of row houses, uh, very crowded, and and many the main entrance to the the flats or the the houses would have been one one entrance, say for I don't know dozens of people, right? So everyone would be coming in and out of that that space. And so although life was hard, you didn't always have enough money, enough food, there's a lot of endemic uh, infectious disease, there was a lot of communal support. So you know that saying, it takes a village to raise a child? Well, you definitely had a tenement to raise a child in, in Glasgow 100 years ago. So what happened over the course of the last 100 years is that we've shifted from that um, and often into high-rise flats or other forms of social housing, which, which is isolated people. So rather than being at the center of cities, um, relatively close to where people would have worked, they're off all over the place and often not very well connected uh, by public transport. So you go from having these situations where it's not only just that the, the parents is there you'd have grandparents you'd have aunts and uncles you'd have family you know friends friends all sorts of generations helping out to raise these kids and keeping an eye out for these kids as well and yeah i mean maybe you know maybe maybe there were a few slaps and spanks being thrown around a bit too but there was probably a lot of support so that we get a shift from that to a situation where parents are very isolated and often they don't have that help. They're up on the, not, not only are they maybe up on the 15th floor of a high-rise high flat, but they also feel terrible if their kid is having a, a tantrum because they don't know their neighbors and they're going to feel bad about it. And that raises the stress and maybe results in, a, in an outcome that they don't, they regret, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's something that we really have to keep in mind is that parenting you know, we think that it should be easier now because we have all these tools, we all have, have all this science, but not necessarily. I think actually in many ways, uh, there was a lot more support to raise kids in the past. And so it was easier for kids to have at least some kind of attachment with adults. Whereas if you're stuck in a dysfunctional family, um, and maybe if you know, like like me, an immigrant in another country, or or yourself, um, you're not going to have those family members to rely on. And so, if it's all on you, then that results in more stressful, more stress, more um, responses that you're going to regret. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and the kid is going to bear the brunt of all that. So, um, yeah, I, th I think you know that that's an important aspect to all of this is is how difficult it is to raise kids especially this day and age when you know you're ex you're expected to do so much and kind of create this perfect environment for raising your child which is completely uh unrealistic yeah yeah absolutely and it reminds me of a, a not it's not a recent but it's a dr phil episode that i we used a clip of it in our trailer for the movie and it's basically rambunctious children. And then it's parents trying to do whatever they can 
And I remember the expert they had called uh, on the show was working for Pfizer at the time, who obviously also makes drugs for children with ADHD. And I remember her uh, so lovingly looking at the mother that was invited to talk about how she struggles with her daughter that was diagnosed with ADHD. And the Pfizer representative, this this older African-American woman looks at her and says, you know, it's not about parenting. Don't blame yourself. It's not about bad parenting, right? And it just hit me in that moment. I thought, well, it's not. Yes, parents shouldn't blame themselves and feel guilty about quote unquote bad parenting. But however, I do believe that it's about unconscious parenting that can cause these disconnects. And again, not to blame the parent, but what do we need to be conscious as a parent? You need to slow down. What do you need to slow down? You need the time to slow down. Mm Well, when you need time and you are both parents are working and stressed and, you know, in that sort of uh, hamster wheel of life, then it's hard to slow down and be conscious and aware. But so I do feel that, again, we need to look at the nuance there. Yes, it's not about bad parenting, but it is a, a sort of a matter of either conscious parenting or unconscious parenting. And when it's unconscious, it's just autopilot, transgenerational hand me down. This is how it's done. Mm. Throw up throw a pill in the mix so that I don't have to go to, to to the principal's office once a week so I can not lose my job and put food on the table. Right. So it's kind yeah. of a, it's kind of a screwed up system that we're all the hamster. We can't get off of it. Right. The yeah. rat race, we can't get out of it. So what do you, what do you suggest? Like, let's say, I'm not saying you're going to save the world here, Matthew, but like, what do you see? And you said this earlier, which I think is beautiful that you would rather, instead of make the child the problem, like work on society, how can we improve? How can we slow this all down and actually be present for our children? What do you think? Well, uh, I think <laughs> there, there, I suppose I'll, I'll say some things that could be done and things that can be done, I suppose, if you get the, get what I'm saying. So I think one thing that I've advocated for for a number of years is a universal basic income as a way of kind of replacing the current welfare system that we have that is very uh it's very it blames people for the the situation they're in so if you had a, a basic income and you're a parent first of all um if you weren't working you would have an income. <laughs> so you would have less stress and you'd felt feel le- less guilty about not bringing in money because you would have an income. But I think it would also allow people to, um, to, I guess, govern how much time that they wanted to spend with their family versus their career and kind of make prioritize things in a different way. So rather than always thinking like when I, when I, when I was, uh, when my kids were young, I was, I really wanted to push to get a promotion to the, you know, to the, the level where I would feel comfortable that we would have enough money. Now, the reason I did that is because my wife was in more of a precarious work situation. So I felt it was down to me to do that. And so I had to, you know, put in the extra yards to do that. And I, I still managed to have a fair amount of time with my kids, but um, you know, I certainly had more time with my son um, when he was young than my daughter because of that. So I think having uh, different 
supports in place that people, and I guess the other thing is that uh, basic income could also allow people to work the sort of jobs that they wanted to work rather than the sort of jobs that they have to work. So you mentioned, um, you know, someone working out out uh, as a ranger versus someone in, in an office doing accounting. Well, I mean, although I like I like my job and I like writing and I enjoy that, what I really love to do is doing the ranger stuff, right? Like I love being in the outdoors um, and trying to do stuff for nature and that sort of thing. But I know that that's not going to pay the bills. Uh, I know that I've got to do what I've, you know, what my skill set kind of pushes me to. So, whereas if there was a basic income, I think for a lot of people, they, it wouldn't be a panacea, but at least they'd be able to think more about what they want to do. And actually, we saw that during the pandemic. So, a lot of people, first of all, there were kind of basic income systems in place in different places to give people an income while they couldn't go to work. But it also gave people pause to think about, okay, am I really happy? And maybe should I be doing something different? Now, these people tended to be people that had the money to make the difference and to make that change. It wasn't, you know, people that were struggling, um, but still it, it just made made us think twice about what, what we were doing in life. I think in terms of a more day-to-day things, I think one of the things that we did as parents was just really think, I guess, think about our parenting and think about, you know, putting yourself in the position of the child and how they're going to view these sorts of things and really trying to limit the the stress and aggravation, right? So yeah, sometimes you lose your temper, sometimes you yell and you get upset, but if you can develop any kind of strategies to just reduce that and it's you know no one's perfect you know you're not gonna become Mahatma Gandhi in in a 12 easy steps right but if you can just reduce some of these things and I think there are you know there are rational ways that you can do that I think that can be a big help one one thing that um I mean, the, the, the one thing that I've found that's been to my advantage is, and this might sound completely backwards, but I cycle everywhere. So that, me, you know, when I cycle, I don't have to worry about traffic. So my time is, you know, I know I can get to work in 45 minutes. You know, there's not going to be a bicycle pileup on the, on, the, on the path I take to work. Whereas if I took the train, the train is often running late, it's canceled, stuff happens, you know, or if I drive, there's traffic and I find it stressful. So, you know, there's little things if you recognize in your life that if I do this, I'm going to be happier than if I do that, then it just allows you when you're with your kids, you're less stressed out um, and you're and you're not going to react in a negative way and whereas you would have perhaps otherwise. So yeah, I think there are little things that we can do, but I also think society as a whole needs a bit of a shakeup to, to realize that there's things that, you know, we could, we could shift things around in a way that would make things easier for everybody, especially our kids. Yeah. And uh, I know these are hard ones to take on because uh, as our favorite Gandhi would say, you know, (laughs) we have to first be the change we want to see in the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
So, and, and Jordan Peterson, another one of my favorite and famous Canadians also talks about, you know, and gets a lot of heat for saying, well, make your bed first in the morning, you know, before you go protest climate change. Right. And he gets made fun of, but I, I get the idea. I get the point. And what's interesting here is that I often have said that uh, I think having a, a child that's diagnosed with ADHD or fill in any other mental disorder, in my opinion, is a blessing because it's almost like a check engine light of the family, right? It's like, not to say that the child is pointing at something very specific, but it's an opportunity to slow down and to go like, oh, wow, this child is struggling with something. Let's find out what that is. And in order to do that, we have to slow down. And how can we slow down? What could be done to slow down? Because our son or daughter matters. So, right. But, but I get the challenge because you really have to sort of uproot everything. And like, you know, our family did that where we just had to look at everything from diet to, to the marriage, to the parenting style. Where do we live? What school are they at? Like everything has to be looked at. Well, not has to, but there's an opportunity to do that. Mm. And I will say in our case that our son has, we have dissolved his, uh, hyperactivity and mostly, I mean, he's still impulsive at times, but he's 14. He's a boy. He's full of ideas, <laughs> right? Right. I'm still impulsive. I'm 53, but he has dissolved those sort of typical DSM diagnosis, you know, uh, symptoms uh, just by us uh, uh, trying everything else before we would even medicate. Right. And look, it's, it's everybody's choice to do so or not. I don't judge. I really only judge when we use a, a band-aid to try to like, you know, have this wound taken care of for life. I mean, it's, it's, it's okay to do it for a, a year or a time when both parents are stressed and they can't, and they're in the middle of a transition, let's do medication for a little while, but then they, most parents just leave it there. Right. It's mm -hmm. like, well, it works. So let's just <laughs> continue the dependency. Right. And we talked about yeah. this before. Now I just want to touch upon a very interesting topic that when you and I first talked, there was this idea of is ADHD a American phenomena? Because how is the rest of the world looking at this? How does it show up for the rest of the world? And what have you found as a historian in other countries? And you had mentioned China and Britain. And so I'm just curious to kind of dig a little bit into that, if you will. Sure. Well, it definitely first gets diagnosed in the United States and it's largely for the reasons that I explained earlier, but it does end up migrating to other parts of the world. Now, there's this rather infamous article, um, and as you'd expect, all the authors are on the Speakers Bureau or of various pharmaceutical companies, and basically they say that you know, it's a meta-analysis of all these different studies, and they come with this magical number, 5.29%. 5.29% of the world's children have ADHD. And if, if, you're, if you're less than that, then clearly you're underdiagnosing. And I, I took this number as a bit of a challenge. And so I actually started to look at different countries. And what you get is you get this very diverse picture. So on the one hand, there is a trend for ADHD to be diagnosed in, in all sorts of different countries around the world. But when you look at the specifics, you get some interesting stories coming out. So, for example, in Britain, where I live, um, it 
takes quite a while for ADHD really to become any kind of a commonly diagnosed condition. Um, so if you look, if you look for the word hyperactivity in medical journals, you, you're just not going to find it um, up until the 1980s, really. And then it starts getting diagnosed um, at a time when actually the UK is is looking to the United States in many ways. Um, it, you know, during the era of, of Margaret Thatcher and then later Tony Blair, where you know the, the UK is trying to become. It's it's getting over the fact that it's no longer an empire and it's trying to find its place in the world again. Um, in places like Canada, where I'm from, ADHD comes quite quickly, as you might expect, because there's a heck of a lot of uh, crossover between the British and Amer sorry, uh, Canadian and American uh, medical communities. You know, they go to conferences. The AMA might be in Canada, or the CMA might come down to the United States. That sort of thing. Um, but Canada tends to, uh, as you might expect, kind of has a calmer, gentler approach to ADHD overall, uh, than the United States. Um, other countries like in Scandinavia, which is quite interesting, you get, a, even though we think of Scandinavia as sort of monolithic, you know, all these socially progressive countries filled with tall blonde people, which isn't really the case anymore. They're quite right, diverse right. now. But, you know, you think, okay, these countries seem quite similar. Sure, they must have same take on ADHD. They don't. Um, Finland gets very rarely diagnosed. Um, and in Iceland, they have higher rates of Ritalin consumption than the United States. So you know, every country, there's there's certain reasons for why it either takes up the American model for ADHD and kind of goes with it, or if it challenges it, or if it rejects it. So, you know, China, for example, China is actually, uh, you start seeing ADHD being diagnosed in China, even earlier than in the UK. And that's partly because it happens when China is opening up, when it's becoming more competitive, um, when capitalism is is entering and is becoming a reality in China. So um, if there's one, I guess, and it's not, and I haven't done enough research to make a really bold claim on this, but I would say that you tend to see ADHD emerging when countries are trying to become more competitive, when they're trying to, um, you know, when they when they sort of feel like they're uh, they're not, when they feel like they're underachieving, actually, then they start going and looking for their underachievers. Um, so, I think, you know, it's it's on the one hand, you do have this this real push from pharmaceutical companies, from psychiatrists, from psychiatric organizations, associations, pushing for this American version of what mental health is. But on the other hand, kind of at the on the ground, so to speak, I don't like that saying, but I think it works in this case, you get lots of different responses here in Scotland. It's council by council, some councils or counties, as you might say, have quite low rates. Other counties have high rates. Why is that? Well, in some of the high rates is because they've they've established targets. 
they sit, tell their mental health professionals, we want to hit a certain target because, yeah, we're not hitting 5.9%. And other places, they say, to hell with that. That's stupid. We're not going to do that. And so, you know, you get the same, the same thing happens in places like Norway, where there's quite, and even in the United States, if you go state by state, the, the differences state by state are quite huge. Um, and even if you break it down by race and by gender, then it, it gets even more uh, diverse. So all of this tells me that, you know, this 5.29 number is complete bunkum. And what we're dealing with instead is, is, is the social context, is the social construction of a diagnosis like ADHD. And uh, e even if we, we, we accept that, yeah, certain kids are very hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive, what you do about it, that's down to that's down to humans making decisions. It's not, you know, there's no, um, th there can be a lot of room for negotiation and adaptation. Yeah. It's interesting because I always, I'm baffled when I talk, I get a lot of heat for that. When I, when I really get down to the nitty gritty and I say ADHD, the label, the name it's made up right? It's made up like when we call a chair a chair, it's made up because when the English language decided to call it a chair, that's when it became a chair before it was a sitting device or whatever, you would just sit on a rock, right? And I do believe that a it's made up. I mean, that's a fact we we, you know, humans got into a room and said, What do we call it, right? You've proven that as a historian, it wasn't always called ADHD. And so now if that's made up, right, and somebody says, I have ADHD, I have this thing, What's the thing, right? Well, it's a bunch of behaviors that we see, that we observe, right? If we were a fly on the wall, and then we've called those behaviors symptoms. And then we labeled that with a disorder. And so now when people say, I have it because fill in the blank, right? They'll say, I have it because it's genetic or because it's my brain or something. But you can't have something that's made up. You can behave in a certain way right? And then ask the question, how come you're behaving that way and not this way? And to me, it's always, I'm always so baffled when people go, well, it's because I have ADHD, but you mm. can't have it because you have it. It's just this weird, you know, it's hard to explain it. I don't know if you have a better example or a better metaphor, but like, what is that? Why do we get stuck in this? Like, I have this thing and now I'm broken for life. And the only way out is to take an external source of medication that's going to fix me. Like, why are we buying into this narrative? Well, I guess I think there's a couple ways of looking at it. We buy into a lot of narratives that aren't very healthy. <laughs> you know, and I think because ADHD is so much bound up in education and academic achievement, in success, in career development, in all those sorts of things that it takes on a certain amount of, um, you know, importance in that sense, you know, if it's almost as if if you don't treat it seriously, you're, you're going to be a failure, I think and that's that that word probably is is a big is, is quite important in discussing this, you know, people don't want to feel like they're a failure, they don't want to feel like there's something they could have done and everything would have been fine. Right. Um, but I think the other thing that's interesting in terms of the labels is that 
Okay, so let's let's go back, and I, I won't go through the whole all the different terms used for ADHD, but there's a couple really interesting ones. So one of the terms used early on was called minimal brain damage, and that's because children and that seem to have these sort of uh, these characteristics often there was evidence that they had had some kind of injury to the brain either during birth or or you know a blow to the head or something like that and then they uh, psychiatrists and pediatricians found that well you know we're still seeing some of these behaviors with kids that haven't got any evidence of that okay let's change it to minimal brain dysfunction because that's a little more general right so that doesn't have to have the damage there let's just call it dysfunction and that that was too vague. And so we went to hyperkinetic impulse disorder and then hyperkinesis. So the focus there was on the hyper, you know, the hyperactivity. And then all of a sudden in, in DSM-3, it's attention deficit disorder. You know, the hyperactivity has gone out the window all of a sudden. And that's partly because the focus had shifted from the kids who were running around like crazy to the kids, you know, the 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 kids who were just staring out the window and not paying attention. So, yeah. you know, at every step, the every step, the number of kids that can be included in the diagnosis expands. And so then we get attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which in, in encompasses it all now the, the the funny thing for me is that i've always thought that impulsivity is at the center of all of that <laughs> so but it's never been called impulsivity disorder <laughs> not, well not yet not yet not yet i, I, sh I shouldn't have said that <laughs> they're coming for you matthew uh well but you know it's a that's a great point you know they went from almost like the the mechanism the tool is broken to oh now they're being hyperactive. The behavior that we're seeing is now the reason why we put the label on it. Before it was the brain, right? Yeah. And it's just baffling to me because I always thought like, what if it's, what if we have it wrong? What if it's actually that these children don't have the attention deficit, but they have themselves a deficit in the right kind of attention that they're not getting from parents, teachers, authority figures. And so therefore they don't feel safe and they got to check out or they disassociate in the moment because they just don't feel at home in their body or in their spirit, if you want to call it that. But I don't know, there's something there that just baffles me because they can pay attention when it's something that interests them. And I know that yeah. the mainstream experts go, well, but that's not how life works. You can't just go out in the world and only do what's Oh, really? What if we lived in a world like that? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be more interesting to begin with? Right. Yeah. I remember this one, this one young man that I, I was I counseled. He so he had an ADHD diagnosis. Um, the first thing is that he self-medicated. He didn't he didn't have Ritalin, but he always had a, a I can't I don't know what it would be an imperial, but he'd have a two liter bottle of Pepsi in his bag at all times to give him that caffeine that he wanted, right? But the interesting thing is that he had he kept six paper routes. So he was very busy with his paper routes, making money off of that uh, while he was in school. I think he was 18 years old when I when I knew him. And he also created his own role-playing game and managed to write a 500 page manual for it 
Um, so yeah, if, if, if he was interested in something, he definitely had the focus. The other, the other thing that was interesting about him is that when he, when he was struggling to concentrate, say doing some math homework, he would just stand up and walk around the room while reading whatever he needed to do. And so, you know, this is an 18 year old and he had, you know, he had a rough time of it, but he had figured out all these different ways of, of not only coping with you know, having to deal with his uh, attention problems uh, and keep his school career going, but also he, he managed to find out things where, or find out areas where he could be really focused. And I mean, think of all that 500, yeah. 500 page role play, role playing wow. manual. Yeah. Well, talking about that, I just interviewed, and this is going to be posted soon as well. I interviewed a teenager. He's 15 and he just finished writing his third novel and he had ADHD and he at some point yeah. just got, he just needed to be busy and think and write and do, and now he's off medication and he's just a prolific writer at 15. I mean, it's like, you can't, he didn't go to school for it, you know? Um, so it's an interest of his, right? But yeah. that brings me, you mentioned something and I, I didn't want to forget that talking about um, the gateway drug, right? Or the, mm. Uh, again, I feel like there's an incomplete uh, narrative that parents hear, which is, oh, if you don't medicate your ADHD, they will self-medicate. Well, there's a, I believe, 30-year study by Nadine Lambert that was at Berkeley who proved the opposite, who followed, I believe it was like 250 kids over 30 years, and who then proved that the kids that were medicated with ADHD drugs were more likely to then become addicted to other substances, including alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, and so forth. Problem is the study was never officially released or published. Mm -hmm. And she had a accident at some point and died. And so I actually managed to get a hold of Berkeley and get a hold of the department to see if I could get my hands on the study. And here's what they said. Um, well, we recently moved buildings and I think we might've shredded that. And I was like, wait, what? You're Berkeley? And there's a 30 year study by back then one of your prominent, you know, researchers around, you know, uh, ADHD medications, and it's gone. Anyway, we can find the information on the internet. But I just thought that was interesting that she actually proved the opposite. And again, parents don't hear about that. Mm. So they think, oh, my God, like you said, I don't want my child to be a failure, we got to medicate because if they're going to go to drugs and become a drug and go to jail, then they're a failure, right? So that fear that parents have, rightly so, because as parents, you and I are both parents, we want our kids to, quote unquote, turn out, right? But I think that pressure and that expectation and that fear drives us to make these decisions that like, oh, I guess we need to medicate, you know, we got to do it. There's no other way, you know? Um, it's just sad. It saddens me to think that society has come to this sort of Label Medicaid and out, go, now become mm. part of the hamster wheel, right? Yeah. But anyway, just wanted to mention that because you uh, had brought up the topic of the gateway drug and how a lot of kids, yeah, they end up self-medicating, you know? So. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we have this, this idea that's been around, I don't know, probably, well, for a long time, but certainly since when vitamins were were identified and marketed that you know you can tweak yourself you can enhance yourself you can make yourself better just you know better living through chemistry right dow chemical um 
And I think, you know, we we do have examples where, yeah, sometimes people do need that. You know, if you're a type one diabetic, you need that insulin, right? Uh, unfortunately, uh, some people are struggling to get that insulin <laughs> because yeah. of the way it's uh, not paid for. But, um, you know, we need to know when, I guess when when these things are necessities and when they're when they're not and when right. you know it's there are other solutions and like you said you know in in, in the case of your son uh, medication being the last resort rather than the first resort I think far too often it's it's the first resort and maybe maybe it has to be a resort for some people for a certain amount of time um, and in those cases you know if that's what they decide that's that's up to them but I think we're selling ourselves short if we're not going through all the other options first. Yeah. And that's funny that you mentioned that because recently what happened was our son who's now 14 said to me, dad, I think I want to try medication now. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Let's talk about it. So we talked about it and I said to him, look, I'm open to that because you're now at an age where you have something to say, I feel right. I still would love to wait till you're 18, but okay, let's talk about it. And I said to him, before we do that, let me put you on some natural supplements first. And I'd done some research and there's a company called Neora and they make this, this brain enhancement pill. It's herbal. And so we tried it. Turns out he hates taking pills. He could <laughs> not take a pill. And he's like, I don't want to do it. I'm done. I don't want to take pills. I'm like, okay. Now I didn't tell him that there's some medications that you can take in liquid form, but I just thought it was interesting. He's like, yeah, I, then I don't want to try it. Yeah. So, okay. That's fine with us. We're just going to, and, and now he doesn't even talk about it. doesn't think about it. He's doing well. He just got into a, a high school. That's really hard to get into. It's a private school. Cause he didn't, you know, he explored the public school, but it was way too big and distracting. And mm -hmm. so, you know, he's doing well. And, and if he wants to try it at 18, maybe, or whatever, and he's okay, you know, taking a pill. Okay. I'll, 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 I don't say allow it, but I'm more likely to uh, entertain that idea than when he was seven years old. Definitely. So that's kind of where we're at nowadays. But well, Matthew, it's been a fascinating conversation. You and I could probably go on for the whole weekend because there's <laughs> way more to this topic, right? And you have written not just around ADHD, but also on, uh, I know you have written on other subjects, uh, psychiatry and food additives and so forth. So perhaps we can do a part two at some point. That would be, I think, right to do so. And is there anything else that you would like to uh, leave our listeners with when it comes down to anything related to ADHD, parenting, or, or anything you've mentioned before? Well, yeah, it would, it would be great to do a part two. I, I'm really interested in, in the role uh, of food. And I guess that's that maybe that would be one of the things I would uh, leave with is that increasingly we're learning more about the gut brain access and how what we put in our bodies doesn't just affect our bellies and our digestion, but it affects our brain. Now, guess what? This is something that people going back hundreds and hundreds of years have known. And it's just that we've kind of forgotten that over the last 75 years. So, I think that that's one thing that is really fascinating. And, you know, um, certainly if, if, if people are interested in 
changing their lives, I would say start with nutrition. Um, yeah, exercise and these sort of things are good too. But I think what you put in the tank is so important. I love that. I love that. And that definitely warrants, I think, another conversation because that's a big topic. And I think that's an accessible topic, right? At least for most people uh, to eat slightly better is not reforming the educational system. I mean, that's a mountain, <laughs> right? But anyway, well, Matthew, I want to thank you for your time. Also for the work that you do. Um, you're a teacher. I think teachers are very important. I mean, look, I think every human's important, but teaching, right? Guiding our children nowadays, or even adults, right, is very important. So thank you for being a teacher. Uh, thank you for everything you shared about. And it was just a pleasure um, having you on and let's do it again soon. Well, thank you very much, Roman. It was a it, my pleasure it was definitely all mine. Thanks. <laughs>